After months, if not years, of highlighting potential energy reliability issues in New York City's future as a result of the state's effort to phase out fossil fuels and embrace renewable energy sources, New York's independent grid operator is now explicitly saying that multiple emergency power plants that utilize fossil fuels and were planned to be retired will need to keep operating past their retirement dates to ensure uninterrupted power to the five boroughs. For more on the assessment and to discuss energy reliability more broadly over the next decade, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Kevin Lanahan, Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communications for the New York Independent System Operator, or NISO. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Good to be with you again, Dave. Thanks. So it's my understanding that NISO, as the state's independent grid operator, has the power to unilaterally decide whether to keep so-called peaker plants running past their planned retirement dates. So what scenario are you planning for in the future, which has led you to essentially utilize this power to ensure grid reliability? Yeah, so um, I think it's probably important to talk a little bit about the regulation that allows us to hold in abeyance some peaker plants in the city that were scheduled to go offline in the summer of 2025. So that regulation was developed by the Department of Environmental Conservation a couple of years ago. It required strict emissions rules of power plants like the, the peakers that we're talking about now. And if the, if the peakers weren't able to comply with that emissions rule, which requires them also to file compliance plans with the state, then um, they either had to deactivate or promise not to operate during what's called the ozone season or roughly the summer. But built into that regulation, and, and we were working closely with the DEC, as were a number of other parties, of course, when the regulation was being developed, to, um, to put some language in that, reg- in that regulation that says, if there are identified reliability needs on the system, in other words, there's a deficiency between the amount of demand that we forecast and the amount of supply provided in part by these peakers, then yeah, the NISO, um, if they so determine, will hold in abeyance um, these machines to stay online, uh, serve serve that that demand. And we've been, as you as you opened with the intro, have been forecasting for yeah years that we've been seeing these declining reliability margins most acutely in the city, um, but across the state as we continue to electrify the building and the transportation sector. So that, that there's a good news story there and that the policies that, um, that the state has adopted to move towards decarbonization, um, accounting for climate change are working. So uh, we're seeing more electrification adoption, as I said, in those sectors. But at the same time, uh, we aren't seeing the kind of development of the resources we need to make up for the gap as we as uh, some of the traditional thermal generators begin to retire. And so we're seeing this growing imbalance between uh, demand and supply. Uh, so the regulation allows us to um, hold on to these peaker plants that, again, are scheduled were initially scheduled to retire in the summer of 2025 for up to two years. Um, but we are going to continue to um, assess the data, look at the system uh, on a quarterly basis, uh, see if we st- still need to hold on to those machines in order to, uh, in order to meet demand. And uh, these peaker plants by their nature are there to supply 
um, demand when it is at its highest. When everybody's cranking up their air conditioners in the summer, um, these are run as a last resort. Uh, we are very aware that they are the more inefficient and definitely higher emitting uh, units. And we are um, very aware that there are communities that are hosting those, um, those power plants that would prefer to have them shut down. So our, our objective, our, uh, we will endeavor to um, only call on those, those peaker plants if absolutely necessary. Well, yeah, you mentioned when peaker plants are utilized and, and your forecast isn't based on this idea that everything is running smoothly and demand is just high as the result of normal wear and tear and everything's online. You're making some assumptions about the future and kind of like a, a worst case scenario that requires us to keep these peaker plants on as a backup, right? I mean, is that, is that a fair way to say yeah, it is. You know, as as we've talked about before, and you've had other guests on your show have outlined that the power system is undergoing unprecedented transformation, um, simultaneous and big changes happening both to the generation portfolio, um, load growth driven by electrification, as we've talked about. And what we need to do is make sure that we're looking far into the future to understand what's happening with those changes and taking uh, steps to make sure we're maintaining reliability as we go through this this major transformation. And I think the great Marie French of Politico New York framed it this way, is that you're preparing for a 95 degree in New York City's future when two generators or transmission lines go offline. And it's in that type of situation where you envision these peaker plants needing to fill the gap. Yeah. Um, we run several different scenarios with sev several different inputs. So um, when we run the modeling, we're, we're looking at um, different weather conditions. We've got a baseline weather condition. We've got extreme weather condition. And then we've got the 100 and, or the one in 100 year weather condition. Part of that modeling is also to run several scenarios where we look at 100% policy adoption, for instance, and then something lesser than that. Um, I saw earlier today, we're talking on the 29th of November, Jamie Dimon in an interview raised again the idea of a recession in 2024. So we, we've got to stay nimble and flexible because the, the load forecast can change, the econometrics can change, um, and that's where our planning engineers step in and take the latest data and incorporate it into these studies. So. We're not, we're not just running one baseline scenario and, and calling it quits. We run several of those. And I think it's important also to mention that we're not devising those scenarios and then putting these studies or plans together in a vacuum. Uh, we will run the proposed draft scenarios that we um, plan to base the study on past all the stakeholders in, in our governance process we've talked about our governance process before on, on your show. And it includes um, all the industry stakeholders plus various different elements and entities of the state, um, including the utility intervention unit. We also have in that governance process, the environmental advocates, environmental justice advocates. So we run these scenarios past everybody before we, the uh, proposed or draft scenarios past everybody in that governance process before we put that, uh, the plan together. 
Well, before we move on, let me reintroduce you for listeners just joining us. This is the Capitol Press Room, and we're talking about energy reliability in New York City and across the Empire State. And our guest is Kevin Lanahan, Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communications for the state's independent grid operator, the New York Independent System Operator. I'm glad you mentioned those stakeholders because I was curious whether you get any sort of pushback when you make a decision like the one you're able to make unilaterally uh, on keeping these peaker plants going. For example, did you hear from environmentalists who say, hey, you're being like chicken little and that scenario is not going to happen and the environmental benefits of curtailing these plants uh, on time is so great that we should maybe take that risk or we don't agree with you on the risks? Did you get pushback uh, like that either behind the scenes or more overtly that I'm just not aware of? So the governance process that I that I just described, I would I would also call robust. Got a lot of different parties in that uh, ecosystem, always debating with us, always questioning each other, questioning us, um, not just about the conclusions, but how we're going uh, to perform various different studies. We believe it's the the most robust and effective governance process amongst all of our sister RTOs across the nation because of the way it's designed, that there is that tremendous and equal input. And then there's work that we do outside of the governance process because we know that these are such serious issues, engaging with various different stakeholders, advocacy groups, the environmental justice community. Um, So we've been in close contact with lots of different parties along the way. This is something that we've been forecasting for, for years. Um, if not the last year. And um, we endeavored that it not be a surprise to anybody if we had to make this announcement about the peakers. That doesn't mean everybody's pleased with it, of course. And um, and for good reason, you know, we we understand that these units are um, are a last resort and uh, some advocates and communities prefer that they be retired sooner than later. And I think communication here is the key. So is the assumption that when a new transmission project uh, connecting Canadian hydropower to New York City is finished, that these peaker plants can be retired for good, that there is that backup reliability concern being addressed that way? Yeah, we're calling the Champlain-Hudson Power Express project, which will deliver 1,250 megawatts directly into New York City, the permanent solution. The key is is going to be making sure that we take, we look at, again, closely, quarterly basis, the the changes and the fluctuations in, in demand, uh, electrification adoption, make sure that uh, we don't fall backwards. And uh, additional big projects um, like Champlain, Hudson, are going to, and additional investment and in transmission is going to be critical to deliver a, a lot of the emissions-free electrons from upstate, but then also anticipating the offshore wind development um, into, into the big load centers like New York City, Westchester County, and Long Island. And after a quick break, we'll have more of our discussion about grid reliability in New York and New York City with Kevin Lanahan, Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communications for the New York Independent System Operator, which serves as the state's independent grid regulator.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Well, for listeners just joining us, we're continuing our discussion about energy reliability in New York. And our guest is Kevin Lanahan, Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communications for the New York Independent System Operator. Well, turning our attention to your comprehensive reliability plan for the entire state, what sort of demand trends for electricity are you projecting over the next decade in New York? We're expecting demand to increase. There's some uncertainty there. Again, going back to what I said, we're going to have to keep a close watch on the econometrics and the electrification adoption. But we've got roughly 10% of the population now that relies on electric heat pursuant to the state policies. We're we're supposed to get to 100% by 2040. So we've got a lot of work to do there. And as, as the demand for that technology increases, we're going to have to keep a close watch on that. Generally, though, the demand is forecasted to increase steadily uh, on the way to 2040. How, if at all, do you anticipate that some of the new manufacturing slated for New York is going to impact the demands uh, for electricity? For example, I think of Micron in in central New York and the spinoff industries that it will likely uh, attract to that region as well as the capital region. Yep, that's going to be another big demand for power. And uh, it's not just the Micron facility, although that first fabrication, 480 megawatts, is is quite big. There's other large load projects crossed upstate New York and in western New York, outside of Rochester, even in the North Country. So we're keeping close watch on those projects to see what that adds to the demands on the system. And making sure that we maintain enough capacity on the system to serve those those large loads. It's another kind of challenge that's nice to have in that upstate New York hasn't seen this kind of economic development interest in quite some time. And now that it is there, we want to make sure that we have enough resources to supply that kind of economic development interest. The plan assumes a transition from a summer peaking system to a winter peaking system. Is that primarily a product of what you mentioned regarding electric heat in homes, or are there other variables that will prompt energy demand to spike higher in the colder months moving forward? Yes. Yeah, so electric vehicle adoption is definitely going to be a bit of a challenge as we as we get to that winter peaking system. It'll mm-hmm. both drive us to a winter peaking system, and it will be a challenge once we get there. Uh, imagine scenario where, where you have somebody uh, commuting home from work, uh, plugging in their electric vehicle this time of the year when, uh, when the sun sets at 4 p.m. and they enter the house and they turn on their convection ovens and their electric stovetop and, and turn on uh, their, their heat pump. Um, and those electric vehicles, we were assuming, and you know, the behavior of consumers is going to be a thing here, that those vehicles are staying plugged in overnight. And so being able to accommodate that kind of overnight demand when you don't have the benefit of, of solar to fill in some of the gap is going to be a, a future challenge for, for winter peaking on the grid. 
Well, turning to the supply side of the equation, are you anticipating the state to begin developing new renewable energy projects under the auspices of the New York Power Authority? Or are you taking a sort of, I'll believe it when I see it, approach to projecting out new power under NIPA's expanded mandate? The rate of progress with regard to NIPA and their development of uh, renewable resources better directed there to understand what, what that's like in real time. But we are anticipating that NIPA is going to be a significant contributor to new resources. And sticking with the supply side of the equation, how does your reliability plan factor in some of the ambiguity around New York's offshore wind projects, some of which have threatened to pull the plug at the same time the state is looking to accelerate its request for additional projects to begin off Long Island and across New York with solar? Two things there. One, we are involved in the development pursuant to the public policy need identified by the Public Service Commission pursuing the development and uh, review of um, several different proposed transmission projects that would connect a large amount of the offshore wind that's been proposed. So we're proceeding along with that and our obligation to work within that public policy transmission need process without pause so that when these projects are ready to uh, put concrete back out there in the ocean and and raise these turbines, the transmission is ready. Um, We haven't seen anything yet that would say there's, at least with the first round of projects, there's some reason to believe that we're not going to see some offshore wind here in the next few years. Glad you brought up the issue of transmission because it's my understanding that uh, in January, you're going to be issuing a request for proposals as part of this public policy transmission need to get power from these offshore projects to New York City. And, you know, context, my understanding is that this is basically like the biggest transmission project in the country's history. Is, is that a fair way to think about this uh, solicitation you'll be putting out there? It's significantly bigger than the public policy transmission needs that have been identified to date. There was successful project in Western New York that we assisted in. And then, of course, the infrastructure that runs roughly from Syracuse east to Albany and then down through the Hudson Valley, those were also successful. And a, a lot of that has been electrified. So, yeah, this is significant. It will be, as I mentioned earlier, significant in connecting up to 12,000 megawatts of offshore wind. We're excited by our role in being able to um, identify which of these projects will be the most sufficient and reliable. But as opposed to trying to move power around Western New York, we're talking about New York City and New York City suburbs where land is much more expensive. It's harder to come by. People are probably just more ornery in general. So how big of a challenge is something like that? And is it a fait accompli that it even gets done? Are there the possibility of roadblocks locally or from the the state that could undermine this? Or because power and getting it to people is so essential, do you have powers or a mandate to get this done despite the obstacles that are going to be presented? Our role is is to analyze all the proposed projects, open up the process where developers can propose projects, and then we dig in and analyze those um, and 
and identify which are the most uh, viable. And a lot of those other questions, while we we do pay attention to some of the questions that you've raised, um, our role is really in the engineering analysis of, of the projects. So that's the next guy's problem then? Well, once we, once we identify, as I mentioned, the, the most viable uh, proposed projects, then we, in effect, deliver that to the Public Service Commission, and then the, the Article 7 process has to begin from there, and we're not involved in that. And when do you anticipate uh, sending out the request for proposals for this project? Is that timeline something envisioned for January or, or later in 2024? We've begun the process and I, I don't want to raise expectations because, as you mentioned, it is so so big as to when we're going to hit some of these timelines. But we've really only just begun uh, the process on this, but we do intend to move as quickly as possible. And there's a lot of uh, lessons learned from uh, the first couple of projects that we went through over the last few years. And so we're taking those best practices and applying them here. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been speaking with Kevin Lanahan. He is the Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communications for the New York Independent System Operator. Kevin, thank you for making the time and good luck in the future. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.